If you could stand for the reading of God's word, today's passage of scripture comes from the Gospel of John, chapter three, verses one through eight. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know if this happens in your family, but whenever my kids have a physical trait about themselves that they don't like, they automatically say, this is because of you, dad. Um, You know, it's interesting. They never say, this is because of you, mom. And there's about 10 different traits they don't like about themselves. And it's always, they come and blame me. So I could either feel frustrated about that, or I can look on the bright side and say, well, that just shows they're my children. They look like me. I'm sorry, kids. I'm sorry. Similarly, if you are born again, born spiritually, you have family traits that show you are your heavenly father's children. And as we looked at last week, so we look again in John chapter three, verses one through eight. And this time we're gonna look at these family traits. These traits are first genuine and second, they are miraculous. Genuine and miraculous. So we'll look at this genuineness in verses five through seven. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The person who is born again knows that they are born again. They actually understand it. They see it in themselves. Jesus says, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So the assumption is that Jesus is saying, if you are born born again in the spirit, that there is a genuine work of God to transform and change you. The apostle Paul describes this awareness this way. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. But, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We have the mind of Christ. So the natural person, they can't see it. Their lives are the same. But the born again person sees things through the mind of Christ. They see things spiritually. Paul takes it one step further in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now I memorized this verse because of the navigators. Topical memory system. I don't know if any of you ever did that. Maybe one or two of you. 
And it's like, I think it's A2, live the new life. And um, memorizing that verse when I was in college, it was really frustrating to me, this verse. And the reason is because I still sinned. You know, I, I felt like I was born again, but my life didn't seem that different. In fact, I still struggled deeply with habitual sin. And so the question is, can you still struggle with sin and yet be a new creation? How can the old be gone, but the new come? The only way that happens is if you have a right understanding of what it means to genuinely be born again. Because to be genuinely born again does not mean that you are no longer a sinner. It doesn't mean that you've reached perfection, that you've attained perfect sanctification. To be born again is a perspective change. It's to see the world through new eyes, spiritual eyes. So though we struggle with sin, though physically even our bodies are wasting away, Paul tells us we are being renewed day by day. Born again people are still sinful. But born again people see even their own sin differently than they used to. They actually see sin. They have a desire for Christ. They have the mind of Christ. They want Jesus and the relationship with Christ more than anything that Jesus provides. A born-again person, yes, wants to be a better mom or dad, a better parent, wants to learn how to parent better, but they don't look to Christ and say, Jesus, I actually only want you because I actually want to be a better parent. It's always, I want Christ, and the fruit of knowing Christ is that you actually learn how to parent better. When, if you want Jesus to fix your marriage, probably going to have a hard time. But if you want Christ and you love him and delight in him, the fruit of knowing Christ is you'll actually grow to be a better husband or a better wife. You'll be loving, submissive to one another. It's the reality of first, as Paul says in First uh, Corinthians, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 5, that he says, first, submit yourselves to one another, in Ephesians 5.20, out of reverence for Christ. And then, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And notice, it's always about Christ. You love Christ. You submit to him. You want him. And the fruit, the effect of that is that you'll learn how to submit to one another, to love one another. This is the perspective change. Jesus is not a step to get to a better place in life. Jesus is life itself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So to be a born-again Christian is not to be sinless. It's not to be morally righteous. It's someone who has a deep affection for Christ and loves him and is in relationship with him, wants him more and more. And everything else is a fruit of that relationship. Now I go back to Nicodemus because Nicodemus gives us a really good example of what it means to not be born again. In chapter three, he is not born again, but he displays a lot of wonderful characteristics as a person. Nicodemus, unlike the Pharisees, is sincere. Nicodemus, unlike the Pharisees, is not so judgmental. He's actually seems like a good person, someone you would enjoy being around. Nicodemus also had some real religious traits that are admirable. He 
loved God's word. He loved God. He worshiped him. He was probably someone, as most Pharisees were, they tithed, gave to the poor. They were family men. So Nicodemus was all of that, but yet he wasn't born again. So stop and think about that. You can be all of those things and not be born again. In fact, you can go to seminary and be a pastor and study Greek and Hebrew and study systematic theology and study uh, the church fathers and learn all sorts of great truths about God and who he is and not be born again. There are pastors who are being trained who are not born again. I, I think for those of us who've been in ministry know this to be true. Um, that is you can desire to be a professional pastor. And that, by the way, is an oxymoron if you really understand what it means to be a pastor without being born again. Tragically, studying the Bible, examining scripture, you can preach the Bible without spiritual eyes, without being born again. So a change has taken place in the heart of the person who is born again. Their life is not the same. It doesn't mean, though, that there's an automatic external transformation. This process, we call it sanctification. Once you are born again, then you live your life in Christ. And the change of being born again, while spiritually speaking, is dramatic, externally, physically speaking, might not be so dramatic. For some, it is dramatic. For some, it matches up the spiritual change and the external change. Some, you have heard a story, who have been a drunkard their whole life. They turn to Christ, and suddenly, they no longer have a desire for drink. It happens. For some who have been addicted to drugs, and they turn to Christ, hear the gospel, believe, are born again, and then in that moment, they no longer have a desire for drugs. Some, they cannot, every single word that they say is an expletive. I mean, they just can't say anything else but. It's part of their nature. And as soon as they're born again, their words change. It happens. But it also happens that some who turn to Christ, whose whole vocabulary is our four-letter words, and as soon as they turn to Christ, they're born again, and they still say those four-letter words every once in a while. Or they can't help it. Or they turn to Christ, born again, but they're still struggling with alcoholism. They're still perhaps tempted by pornography and maybe even delving into it. The change is real, but the process might take time. It both are there and it happens to different people in different ways. Let me just uh, illustrate this. Imagine a, a child who's been adopted from the slums. He wore tattered clothing raised in a dirty orphanage, living in his filth. He has nothing. And you go to that orphanage and you bring him home because your desire is to adopt this boy into your home. And so you bathe him, you feed him, you love him. And now he looks dramatically different. He has changed. So anyone who looks and sees a past picture of what he was like prior to that adoption and then today, they say, this boy has changed. He's a new. But internally, he's still wrestling with being an orphan, struggling with that. But you also adopt another boy 
This boy is the brother, uh, is the child of your brother and his wife. Your brother and his wife are tragically killed in a car accident. Your brother is wealthy, comes from a loving family. So you bring him home to join your, this family as well, this growing family of yours, and you love him and you care for him. You don't really have to wipe off the feces and clean him up, and he's generally the way that it is. Externally, looks no different than how your own child would be if he was raised in your own home. Two boys, both orphans, but they look vastly different externally. But internally, they're struggling with the same problem, the root problem of, what do I do now? I don't have a mother and father. And you have come in and said, I'm your mother and father. I'm the one who's going to care for you, love you, protect you, provide for you. You have a new identity. You're my son. So whether you have been saved as a drunkard, a drug addict, a porn addict, and you've all your life lived in a Christian family and looked pretty moral and righteous, you're still an orphan, spiritually speaking. And you have to grow in Christ. And you have, when you're born again, been set free from your orphanness. But to overcome that experientially, it often takes time, sometimes really a whole lifetime. But the identity doesn't change. You are a son or daughter. The legal work, if you're thinking, again, materially, physically, an orphan is legally, and I've been in the courts where someone is said, declared legally, you are the son of, you are the daughter of so-and-so. And in the same way, there is a legal work that has been done for us when we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We are no longer slaves, but a son, as Paul says in Romans 6. So there's a legal change, but the legal change is real. You're never not going to be a son or daughter, but it's very difficult to overcome that feeling of, do I belong? Am I... The, am I Am I really a son? Am I really a daughter? And that's life. And that's the wrestling. The born-again person knows, though, that no matter how much you struggle with orphanness, God has done the work of saving you. So even though you might struggle with it, you know the reality, the truth, the doctrine that you are changed, you are transformed, you are a new person, the old has gone. The new has come. You are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. You are set free. You are loved. You are his. He will never let you go. He will not let you be snatched out of his hand. That's a truth. And though I struggle in my life with that truth and believing it, I go back to it again and again. That is a concrete, objective solid bedrock truth for your soul and your life. And that change then impacts slowly but surely how you view God's word. Prior to being born again, the Bible is a book, just like any textbook. It's something to be studied and examined and uh, sort of uh, defended against. But once you turn to Christ, it is a delight. Now, it's not always delight. You struggle with that delight. But fundamentally, even if I struggle with the delight of God's word, I go back, oh yeah, but he saved me. This is his promise to me. 
So I then read it again. And some of you have made resolutions. And slowly, what are we at? January 15th. Maybe you have gone back on those resolutions already and you're not reading scripture as you promised yourself you would. But if you're born again, you don't say, ah, it doesn't work. Forget it. You actually say, but it's God's word. I have to go back and try again and keep on trying. The born again person knows the value, believes it. And even when they struggle, they keep on going back. They pray. They worship. This time together is not just a religious duty or an act. It's God's family. It's the gathering of his people. The born-again person does not see this time as peripheral to their life. It's you're not counting the, the minutes so that you can leave as soon as possible. No, you, you find this precious. Even though maybe you do have to drag yourself out of bed, get the kids in the car. You know, they have an argument. You have an argument with your husband or wife. And you're just pulling yourself in. But you know you need to be here. This is for your life. Because a genuine work of God has been done and wrought in you a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And that's very different from the way that the world views life. So that's the genuineness of the trait of being a child of God. Second is we see the miracle of it all. In verse 8, John, uh, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, what's interesting about this verse is that the wind is not referring to the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 8, the wind is referring to everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the word so shows us that. So it is almost um, not contradictory, but not it's it's unexpected. We the the Bible often speaks of the Holy Spirit as the wind, because the unpredictability of the wind is comparable to the Holy Spirit. He goes where he pleases. No one can trap him. No one can box him in. But here we see that people. People who are born again are being referred to as the wind. Now, what does, what does this mean? I think Jesus' point is that if you are born again, there is, an, there is a miracle at work. And it's not something that can be controlled. Like the wind, you cannot control it. You can, you can see the effects of the wind. Anyone see the effects of the wind this past week? 2 a.m. on Tuesday, I woke up because I could hear the windows just it felt like they were going to crash through. You look outside and you see the trees. They look like they're going to fall apart. I don't see the wind. I see the effect of the wind. I see the trees blowing. I, see, I hear the wind, but I certainly don't see the wind. And in the same way, Jesus is making this metaphor and he's saying that we who are saved, who are born again, it is unknown as to how this happens. It's not like you can control it. You can somehow obtain it. It's not a decision of faith. It's not something you say, today I'm going to be born again. You don't do anything to be born again. It happens to you. Like the wind, it is beyond you, your power, your intellect, your money, your strength. 
Christian author and philosopher, and I think most of you know his name, Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who was once, he was often called the reluctant convert. And as an atheist, the last thing he wanted to do was to follow Jesus. But God used his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, as well as his journey of faith, so that he was finally born again. I'd like you to listen to how he describes the moment he was born again on September 28th, 1931. And he said he would never forget this day. He said this, I know very well when, but not how the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought. I think about what he's saying. I wasn't thinking, doing anything. I started driving to the zoo. I wasn't a Christian. I, didn't, I was not born again. Got to the zoo, I was born again. Anyone have that type of experience of being born again? See, some of us have this experience. We say, there's no real time or date or anything. I was just going to church my whole life and then I believed in Jesus. You might think there's no moment. There's nothing dramatic about that. And sometimes I do think we have this almost unintentional belittling of the very work of the Holy Spirit to bring you from death to life because there's no such thing as an unmiraculous salvation. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because of a miracle. That miracle is dramatic. It doesn't matter whether you were once a gang member and now you no longer go and kill people. Because I do think that so often when we think of testimony giving, maybe at youth retreats, there's always that, you wanna hear that dramatic testimony. And that's what always gets people crying. But no, your testimony, like C.S. Lewis, just driving to the zoo, it is dramatic. It is. Because the work of the Holy Spirit has done something in your life that you could not control, no matter how much you tried. And that is good news for every one of us. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine if your abilities and strength and effort and education could lead you to be born again. Then who would be born again first or most? Who could be the most born again? It would be someone who went to Stanford, a Nobel laureate, someone who has a lot of money, someone who came from a really great background. I don't know, maybe Prince Henry, Harry, not Henry, Harry. You know, I mean, someone who has royalty in their blood. Those are the people who are born again the most. But then you have the lesser born again people, um, the care workers in Africa who have nothing. Someone who has cerebral palsy. That person is less born again someone who's poor, impoverished. Is that how we think of faith? This is the danger of thinking that somehow I contribute to God saving me. Because if that's the case, then that means that there is something I can literally do. I can pay for it with money. And there's a guy who believed that you could buy being born again. His, his name was Simon Magus. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24, we hear his story. Peter and John are praying for people, praying that the Holy Spirit will come. And people are being saved. The Holy Spirit is coming graciously. 
And so Simon, he sees this, and then he, he says this, or, or this is what's described. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. If believing was not by the will of a sovereign, the sovereign Spirit, then it might be possible for our resources, our reasoning, our rationale, to cause someone to believe. And how faulty our thinking is when we are sharing the gospel with someone or praying for someone and we automatically think, oh, they should be a Christian because I prayed for five minutes today. I mean, imagine if it was based on that. Again, that unlocks this idea of Simon Magus that you can buy this, you can earn this, you can work to this, you can do this. I think every parent thinks wrongly as a Christian parent that if I have family worship, if I bring my kids to church, if they go here and do these, if I send them to Christian school, they're going to be a Christian. That's Simon Magus thinking. I can earn this. I can do something that somehow through spiritual osmosis transfers my faith to that person. You can buy it. And then that means that only the powerful people in the world can be saved. That's a lie of the, of the devil. Instead, Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2, uh, 3, verses 4 through 7, but when the goodness and love and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, and here it is, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Not because of works, according to his mercy. By how? Not by our works, but by the washing and regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, again, is the one who does it. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus, so that being justified by his grace, the gospel, we might become heirs, sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters, according to the hope of eternal life. What Paul is telling Titus is, it is through the gospel. It's actually why we're doing gospel well. Because if you notice the topics, orphans and sons, adoption, great exchange, um, it's all about this. It's right, trying to go deep into this and saying, hey, we have lived our Christian life far too often thinking that I can earn salvation. I can earn God's favor. I can work my way for God to love me. And, to, and then with that comes the burden of when we fail and we say, oh, this is so miserable. I hate being a Christian. So burdensome. Or we say, I'm so awesome. And you, drunkard, poor person, prostitute, homeless person, you're, you're beneath me. You're lower than me. You cannot say that in light of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 or Titus 3, 4 through 7. My friends, if you are born again, it is solely because of God. Just God alone. He raised you from the dead. Just as much as he raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, so too God raised you from the dead. And dead people cannot do anything for themselves. The born again person, and I just need to emphasize this one more time, you are not sinless. To me, that's actually good news. Um, John Newton, the slave trader. And if there's any person who does not deserve to be saved, it's John Newton. He traded in the persons 
of their welfare and their being, selling them, breaking up families, doing horrific deeds. Again, think about it is an unforgiving culture. There's no redemption in our culture. You fail once, no hope for you. It's anti-gospel. For someone like John Newton, he could never have been a pastor or someone you would read and say, I'm blessed by John Newton. You wouldn't sing Amazing Grace. You'd say, how dare that evil, slimy guy do such a thing? I will not sing a song like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But on John Newton's tombstone, it says, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. And that's what it means to be born again. You see the depth of your sin. You know the darkness. You see it. You know yourself. But you realize that Christ raised you from the grave. He's lifted you up. He loves you. He's adopted you. He's welcomed you into his home. He's clothed you. He's fed you. He's cared for you. He's promised he will never leave you. And every person in the Bible, every truth of God's word points to that reality. Nicodemus comes to realize this. David a man after his own heart has a blackened soul, and yet God renews and restores him. The disciples abandon him, Peter denying him, but yet here he is coming and preaching to, so that 3,000 would be saved. That's not because he's awesome. That's because he saw the blackness of his soul, but he sees a great savior. Paul, the great persecutor of the Christians, John Newton, the slave trader, C.S. Lewis, the atheist, St. Augustine, the most miserable of immoral men, all of them seeing the darkness of their soul, being born again, and then saying, I have a new life. The old is gone, the new has come. My friends, you have to start with your own heart. You see the darkness of your heart, not because you want to dwell on it and think, despairingly there's no hope but rather to see i need a savior and jesus gave his life on this cross and what we celebrate every week is to remind us not just of the freedom we're found in christ but also why jesus needed to die for someone as miserable or as john newton describes it to save a wretch like me i once was lost but now am found was blind but now i see if you try hard in marriage and parenting and life and you think that somehow bringing them, coming to church on its own is going to solve anything, it won't. You have to be born again. As Jesus says, you must be born again. Would you come to him? See first your own soul and its sinfulness and then see your need for Christ and he will not let you down. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the promises of your word that show us once again that there is no way on our own we can turn to you. But you are merciful. You are kind. You are compassionate, as we read in today's call to worship. You are God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the proof of that is this cross and this resurrection, only when we die in Christ will we live in Christ and will we be, we be set free to be sons and daughters of the living King. 
So Lord, for those who have never trusted in Jesus, I pray that just like C.S. Lewis, maybe they walked into this place, they didn't believe. May they leave today believing in the name of Jesus. It can happen just like that because you are a saving God, a miracle-working God. And for those who have been saved, who are born again, Lord, we have forgotten some of us of the power and the fruitfulness and the freedom and the joy and the delight of following Jesus. So I really commend you, Lord, by your spirit upon them. Remind them once again through this broken bread, this body, this bloodshed, that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We just praise you, Lord. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.